the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, do you still believe that the church is the hope of the world? And then we're joined by Eugene Park, Associate Professor of True North Church in Palo Alto, California, to talk about three signs that your church is in a bubble. You're listening to The Common Good. Friday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Aubrey, we've made it to Friday. Finally. I, I mean, love Friday. I know. I mean, but it's a four-day week, but you, like I think you've been saying it's been hard to know what day it is when you have Monday week. off. Yes. It actually feels long. Like, it's just a weird, weird. Do you struggle with your kids being out of school feeling like you shouldn't be working? Absolutely. Like, I feel like we should all be celebrating summer together and doing fun summer things, but it doesn't work that way. It does in Iceland. That's not we, real life. We learned that earlier in the week. Oh, <laughs> Iceland. We all got to move we there. We need to be Icelanders. Yep. Uh, but yeah, I, I do struggle with that. Like, my kids, like, oh, they're doing fun things or they're doing this. I'm going to work. Uh, but, you know, uh, such is life of being an adult. All right, Aubrey, we're starting off this Friday this way. You and I, we talk about this often. We are both pastors. Yep. Uh, and so at the Gospel Coalition, they wrote this article uh, that is really discussing a recent uh, essay at First Things by Carl Truman. Uh, Justin Taylor does this at the Gospel Coalition, asking this question, do you still believe the church is the hope of the world? Hmm. Before we get into what they say, uh, how do you process that question? What are your thoughts on that question? <laughs> you know, I will always believe the church is the hope of the world. And I mean, part of me wants to say not the institution of the church, but I actually think I, I do mean the institution of the church. I mean, the body of believers gathered together under the name and lordship of Jesus Christ. And I believe it's the hope of the world as messy as we are because God has ordained us to be such. And I, the church is still beautiful. Mm -hmm. God is still doing powerful things through his people all around the world all the time. And we can get so cynical as Christians mm -hmm. and we can tear the church apart on social media. But at the end of the day, this is God's beautiful bride. And I want to keep hopeful as long as I can. That's what about you? Absolutely. Well, uh, I agree with you, but it's hard, it's hard coming out of COVID where church seems to have taken a little bit of a backseat more uh, for a lot more people, but also when you see all the messiness of the church. Yeah, and uh, I remember uh, we read something a week or a week ago, maybe from Scott Sauls, where he kind of talked about the hypocrisy of the church points to its great tenant, its greatest tenant, that being grace mm. and and not our perfection. But Truman says this, St. Paul was certainly well aware of the failings of Christians, even of the wickedness that they could perpetrate in the church's name, as his blunt letters to various congregations indicate. But he never ceased to present the church, flawed, divided, morally compromised as she was, as the meaning and hope of history. Hmm. Uh, and, and so Truman wants to hold out this point that, yes, the church is messed up. Yes, the church is hypocritical. Yes, the church has its issues. But, uh, but God himself in the New Testament says the church is going to be my vehicle 
uh, for uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel into the world. Yeah. And I do think when we continually malign the church, when we continually critique the mm-hmm. church, and it's such a fine line because you want the church to be the best it can be. Yes. And so you want to ask about, like, how do we become better? But when, but the danger is to get to the point where we go, the church, it doesn't matter anymore. Right. The church is meaningless. Or it's the church is beyond, beyond repair right. or whatever, and you just give up and walk away. Right. But instead to be reminded that the, that the message of, uh, of the early church, the message of, of the, of the Bible is that God says that the gates of hell will not prevail against my church mm-hmm. and that, um, that, that we still need to have hope in, in, in the, in the, um, importance of the church, even while critiquing what's going on, asking it to be better. We can't lose, like you said, and become so cynical to lose the hope of what the church can and should be. I think sometimes I struggle to, you know, a lot of uh, people on social media have left their church, whatever their church is. And then they criticize the church from no longer being a part of the church. And, and I have a hard time with that. I think mm. I would rather take criticism and a keen eye towards change from someone who's faithfully committed to a local mm-hmm. church and is willing to say, look, she's messy. She's not perfect. There are problems, but I'm in it because I believe God has called me to be a member of his body. I, I think I can take criticism from within, I guess is what I'm saying, yeah. more from without, or I can respect criticism more from within. Simultaneously, I don't love seeing Christians just tear the church apart, 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 apart on social media mm-hmm. because I just don't think it's a good look for us. Like, no. let's build up the church rather than tearing her down. And of course, we've always said this. Call out injustice, call out sin. Mm-hmm. But I think if you grow so cynical that you're constantly critiquing like your own body publicly, then I, I, it's not a good witness, I, I don't think, online. There has in some ways become a bit of a cottage industry in evangelicalism of people who I'm outside the church and I critique the church. I critique yeah. the movement. I yeah. critique all of this stuff, yeah. the subculture. And there's there's something to be said about that, right? We, mm-hmm. we see the prophets in the Old Testament. Yeah. But, Totally. But I'm with you when those people who are doing that are not engaged in the church. It, it does more good, more harm than good. Uh, let me just read. It's a little lengthy. Let me read how Truman ends because okay. I think it's powerful. Okay. He says, the church's exile from mainstream culture is going to be hard, but the Bible makes it clear that she wins in the end. The gates of hell shall not prevail against her. That is the source of our hope at this time. And so it is pastorally cruel and theologically irresponsible for Christians to obscure this truth with endless complaints about, quote, the church's past behavior and present inadequacies. By all means, call out the moral failings of Christians, congregations and denominations left and right. Yeah. But be specific. Mm. Do so without slander and vitriol and make a clear distinction between the church and the specific failings to which you allude in order to promote clear thinking. And remember, if your critique of Christians is not balanced by a Pauline emphasis on the church, the body of Christ, as the answer to the world's problems, you ultimately offer no true Christian commentary on the contemporary scene. Mm. For as soon as you see the church herself as part of the problem, you have lost the gospel and deprived yourself and your audience of hope. There's so much there. I find wow. that to be so powerful. What what strikes you from how he concludes there? Wow. I, I mean, it, it, it harkens back to when we were talking about the 4th of July and the difference between patriotism and nationalism. Like, we can love the church enough that we critique it well. And I think ultimately that's what he's saying. Like, 
that we we can critique the church, but ultimately we have to um, still love the church. And that's why we we want her to be the most beautiful bride she can, because we love her, not because we hate her. And Mm -hmm. ultimately, I think that's what he's calling for, just like a love for the church and a good charitable critique rather than a a slanderous one. Absolutely. I think I think in the end, the goal uh, is for the church to be better, not for the church to be torn down. There you go. That's good. Uh, because Jesus himself uh, said that the church, uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So are they are our churches individual and collectively perfect? Obviously not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we don't still have hope in them and still look to them. Uh, to be a beacon of light within our culture and within our community. We're off and running here on a Friday. Going to be joined next by the author of an article called Three Signs Your Church is in a Bubble and Three Tips for Popping It. He is the associate pastor of True North Church in Palo Alto, California. His name is Eugene Park. Eugene is going to join us next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to the Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. We're glad to have you joining us today. Uh, and Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined uh, by the author of an article at the Gospel Coalition entitled Three Signs Your Church Is in a Bubble" and Three Tips for Popping It." Uh, his name is Eugene Park. Eugene, how are you doing today? Hey, doing well. I'm really excited to be here, so thanks for having me on. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, before we jump into this article, uh, we'd love to have you just introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better. Yeah, sure. I'm an associate pastor of a church called True North. Uh, We're located in Palo Alto, so very very close to Stanford. Um, It's an interesting area to to minister in. Uh, I think over 80% of our church, uh, they work in big tech, mm. so they work wow. on all the apps that you're you're scrolling mm-hmm. through and, and keeping you addicted to your phone, so that's, <laughs> that's an interesting uh, subset that people have to minister to, but yeah, I'm married, I have kids, and um, I'm Korean-American, so our church is mainly Asian-American, but that's a little bit about me. That's great. Love hearing that. Eugene, so again, the title of your article for the Gospel Coalition, Three Signs Your Church is in a Bubble and Three Tips for Popping It. Tell us what led you to write the article in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think it was more of an more than an indictment on people. It was more of a self reflection on mm-hmm. myself and my church and my ministry. I think we're very bubbled to other due to other factors, maybe than other churches. I mean, a lot of my congregants are so well paid. Um, they live in, in you know, obviously in the Bay Area, the real estate's king, so that they, most of them are able to afford big houses, and it's a bubble in its own. Um, and I, that's one thing that I observed as I was pastoring is the discussions that we would have in our community groups or in our discipleship meetings, um, it felt a little out, out of touch with what was actually going on in the bigger church world and just in our nation as well. Um, and that just kind of compelled me to, Again, more than indict churches, just self-reflect on my own church, my mm. own ministry, even myself as a pastor, of how all of us, essentially, uh, we're, we're living in our own bubbles. Yeah. yeah. And Eugene, I, I I appreciate the way you diagnose it, but let me just ask kind of a more foundational question. What's the danger of being in a bubble? Help people understand why that's a bad thing for a church. Yeah, I mean, bubbles in itself are dangerous. And, you know, there's there's famous bubbles we can talk about. We can talk about how QAnon is a bubble, I think even on the left, Hollywood in itself is a bubble too, yeah. which I could I could go on about that, but I won't. Um, and and the, the dangerous thing about bubbles is, I think I mentioned this in the article, is that tra- they're translucent. 
So meaning that when you're in a bubble, if you think about it, it, it seems like you see a, you have a clear grasp of everything around you. But in reality, it's a little distorted. Mm-hmm. Um, how you view reality, how you view your values, maybe even how you view scripture or Jesus or the church, mm-hmm. it can be slightly distorted with whatever bubble you're in. And you know, down the line, and, and we've seen this politically, we've seen this uh, maybe even on a societal level on our nation, these bubbles at first can be just, oh, hey, I have a crazy stance or a crazy view. But that always leads to actions, habits, and, you know, in this case, sins as well of churches. Yeah. And I think what happens is, is we become more tribal than we even know because they're translucent. We think, oh, you know, I'm just part of, I'm, I'm a church going Christian. I, I'm not tribal. But in, in, in essence, you are a little tribal when you're yeah. in a bubble and you just don't know it. Yeah, that's so interesting. Eugene, um, give us the three signs you wrote about how people can identify if their churches are in are either in bubbles or actually have become bubbles. Yeah, I mean, I would say like if you're listening to this, you're you're in a bubble in itself, right? <laughs> that's TGC, true. If you read TGC, that's a bubble, you know. And and, yep. and the three signs that I put is that uh, the the main danger signs that I thought of was one. I think if you value ideology over doctrine, um, yeah. I think that's one of the most worrying signs that you're in a dangerous bubble. Um, I was really moved by Michael Horan, who gave a talk at the last TGC conference where he talked about there's there's a huge emphasis right now on ideology over doctrine. When, when you walk into a church, he said, you know it's whether it's a CNN church or a Fox News church. Mm-hmm. You know if they listen to NPR or if they listen to Ben Shapiro. Wow. And so much of the church... Life is often structured around those decisions rather than the word. So, you know, one thing I, I talk to my friends is I think nowadays as a pastor, people are more concerned with if I read NPR or Fox News compared to where I stand on baptism or mm. congregationalism. And, and I find that to be an issue. I, I miss those old days when people <laughs> just thought about, you know, tulip or, or, or right, baptism. Right, but, right. Those days are gone. So but that's the first sign that I, that I said. The second... More than a sign, I think it's just a sign of the age, is uniformity. I think just due to geography, and this is something that I, I think I, I wrote, I uh, read from a Stanford professor named Jonathan Roden. He, he puts it that everywhere you're at geographically, you're, you're, you're kind of in a homogeneous area, meaning that everyone within probably a 50 mile radius of you votes the same eats the same, even watches the same TV shows. Mm. And I think because of this, our churches lack diversity, which create bubbles. And when you read scripture, when you read especially Ephesians, like we're called to be a church, a mix of different people, you know, Jew, Gentile, whatever it may be. So I think uniformity is another sign uh, of the age. And lastly, um, the most dangerous sign that we're in a bubble is this idea of, of an us versus them. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that I think a lot of churches have right now. Um, you know, when you go on Twitter, I think Christian Twitter is such an interesting world because people are more concerned with attacking other tribes, bubbles, or, you know, sections of churches rather than espousing their own idea of who Jesus is and how that applies to our day-to-day. And I think that's a huge, huge danger sign that almost all of us are in a bubble, that we are pitting church versus church, more than uniting together as the big letter C church. Yeah, Eugene, I think the $64,000 question, and you tackle this in your article then, is what do we do? How do you, to use the imagery, how do you pop the bubble if you're in one? Um, you know, I'm not sure, because yeah. I'm still in one. But <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think three things that I thought that would 
at least I'm trying to do is the first is I, I read a really fascinating book by Chris Dale. Um, I think he's a Duke professor. Uh huh. We've had him on the yeah. We've had him on the comic good. He's oh great. yeah, mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah, Tim Keller mentioned him, so I, I picked up the book, and I think one thing that he noted in that book where he talks about how social media has divided us is that you would think when you expose people in a bubble to another side that they would somehow see the light and become more moderate. But one thing that he noted, which I found really interesting, is, and I'll read the quote, he said, exposing people to other views from the other side did not make them more moderate. Rather, it reinforced their pre-existing views. Mm. And I, I think, you know, as pastors, one of our maybe uh, quick reactions to this is like, hey, let's just pop the, the bubble that we're in. If we have a bunch of, you know, QA on people at our church, let's let's rush into that headstrong, or maybe people are a little bit too on the left, let's rush into that headstrong. And I think the first thing I said is just let the air out slowly of a bubble. Yeah. Um, if you try and pop it, the bubble reinforces even harder. So, you know, and that's harder to do because sure. that takes conversations, right? That takes personal talks. And I think that's really important for, especially if the pastor listening, and that's including myself, that mm-hmm. rather than just look at these problems and be like, what's wrong with my church? We got to engage it on the ground level rather than just from the pulpit. Mm. Um, so that's one thing that I put. Um, secondly, and, and this is kind of related to the first, and I wish I cut it, the nuances a little bit better, but I do think a lot of the bubbles that have occurred, and, you know, CRT is a great example because it's the hot topic of, of Twitter these days. Right. I do think there's, you know, two main bubbles from that, and I think the main reason is no church on both sides ever wanted to talk about racial issues directly, mm. if that makes sense, until, the, until they had to. Yeah, you know? yeah. And the church has been reactive so long to these issues that are going on in the world. And, you know, some of you might be the guys of, hey, let's be faithful to the word. And I understand that, too. But I do think there has been a lack of directly addressing issues that our congregants worry about and think mm-hmm. about and talk about. Yeah. Whether it be CRT. Um, whether it be gender issues, it could be any number of divisive issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the church needs to do a much better job of addressing these issues directly head on. Let's not flip around things. Let's not demonize them, but actually have genuine scripture-based talks about these. And lastly, I, th- I think I put um, social media. We need to learn how to disciple our, our members better. And, and, you know, this is me coming from the Bay Area. I, I think the Christian answer to a lot of habits of the time has either, has always been binary. Is it good or is it bad? Mm. Is it sinful or is it holy? Yeah. And the reality of our church members' lives and congregants' lives is life is not binary. The Christian life is not binary, right? Yeah. There's, there's a huge gray area, and I think social media falls into that category. And rather than thinking about, hey, the solution to social media is just use it less, I think we need to learn how to disciple our members on how to use social media to the glory of God. Um, Brett McCracken, who's a friend of mine, does a lot of good work on this too. Uh, but I think that's something that we really need to think about as a church. That's great. That's great. Check out Eugene's article at thegospelcoalition.org. That's thegospelcoalition.org. You can also follow Eugene on Twitter. I love your handle, at EugeTheDad, E-U-G-TheDad on Twitter. Eugene Park, associate pastor of True North Church in Palo Alto. He's also the co-host of a podcast called Off the Pulpit. Go check that out. Eugene, thanks, man. It was great to meet you. This was really helpful. Thanks to have you. Thanks so much, guys. Absolutely. Our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on a Friday. Aubrey, what is one of our favorite things? Maybe our favorite thing that happens every Friday. Top five list. Top five list. This is where Aubrey and I, we pick random, and I'm going to really warn you today, today is the most random top five list we've done at all. Yeah, that's probably accurate. This is it. That's probably accurate. I explain it to you, we love the top five jingle. Let's get going. Top five, top five, top five, top five, top five things with Brian and Aubrey. All right. That is how we get this started. Here's remember what it is. We come up with a category and Aubrey and I, without seeing what each other has done, uh, we we answer, uh, we give our top five list. We go back and forth, some honorable mentions, and it's amazing how different you and I are as people. I'm wondering on this category how different we'll be. I think we'll be different. Okay. All right. We'll okay. Uh, here is random. And, and this came a little bit. This is a bit of a stretch. But those of you watching the NBA Finals right now, you know that the dominant storyline of the NBA Finals uh, is Chris Paul. Right, Chris Paul, he is uh, the point guard of the Phoenix Suns. Uh, He's been in the league for a long time. uh, And Chris Paul, a lot of people think he is going to win his first NBA championship, kind of solidify his already Hall of Fame career. So, no, we're not doing our top five basketball players. No. We're not doing our top five championship moments. No, we are not. We're doing our top five Chris's. (laughs) That's right. Top five, Chris's. So these, a little bit of a rule here. These can't be like personal friends named Chris. I have an old college roommate named Chris. Right. Not going to talk about him here. He'd probably be my favorite Chris, you know? Yes. Uh, But this is uh, our top five kind of celebrity or well-known Chris's. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You want to go with uh, number five? Ah, okay. My number five. You came in today prepared with this. I came, but you just said something that threw me off. Because, okay. Anyway. All right. Here we go. My number five of top five Chris's is Chris Martin, the lead singer of Coldplay. Oh. Okay, why? Any reason? I'm a Coldplay Coldplay. fan. He's British. He's jolly. He's always so happy. Used to be married to Gwyneth Paltrow. Yes, yes. And apparently a Christian or some kind of... You spiritual guy. I like him. I like Coldplay. I like Chris Martin. Some kind of spiritual guy. All right. All right. Uh, One could say he's a Christian. Ooh. You can't put Jesus Christ on this list, by the way. Okay. Because a Chris is not a Christ. (laughs) Okay. I'm just going to clarify that for you. Number one, then. (laughs) All right. My number five Chris, Chris Tomlin. Excellent. Excellent. I actually, I'll just say now, I have, I have Chris Tomlin as an honorable mention. But you, you go ahead and that. talk about why you like him. I think he's better than that. I think Chris Tomlin, you know, not only is he a good, good father, but he is. <laughs> <laughs> he is uh, well, many of the songs that many of us love in the Christian world that are so positive and encouraging. We love come out of the pen and the mouth of Chris Tomlin. Yes. So I'll go with Chris Tomlin. Okay. Uh, that's a great choice. Right. That's a very evangelical. Choice. Thank you. Well done. All right, my number four top five Chris's is a little comedian named Chris Rock. Mm-hmm. And here's a little Inception moment for you. Chris Rock has a movie called Top Five. <laughs> Wonderful. So I, I like I like him in Madagascar. I'll be honest. Oh yes, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, I'll give you a hint, Chris. Uh, your number four is going to show up higher <gasps> in my list. What? 
What? Yes. That yes. is exciting. All right. What's your number four? Uh, my number four uh, is Chris Pratt. <gasps> Excellent. So, Excellent. Yep. Uh, everything from the Marvel movies, mm-hmm. right? Guardians of the Galaxy. Jurassic to Park. Jurassic Park to, most importantly, Parks and Rec. Oh, he's so good on uh, Parks and Rec. He's a new movie out on Amazon Prime right now that's supposed to be really good, too. All right. And so there is uh, my number four is Chris Pratt. Okay. My number three is none other than Captain America, Chris Evans. Chris Evans. He made my uh, Chris Evans made my um, honorable mention list. Okay. All right. I think he's better than that, but okay. 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 Uh, Speaking of the Marvel Universe, my number three uh, is going to be Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, that's a good choice. Solid choice. He being Thor. You have made a grave mistake, Odin son. I make grave mistakes all the time. Everything seems to work out. Kind of my favorite character in that uh, whole Marvel universe. What did you call it? The Marvel Cinematic Universe, the MCU. It's not what I call it. It's what it's called. I don't think it could be. <laughs> it's called the uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's what everyone does. So okay. Brian, look it up. Hey, I put him on my list, so okay, you should be asking that. for that, All for right. number three. Uh, I'm on number two now. My number two is who you just mentioned, Mr. Chris Hemsworth himself, Thor. Is he your favorite Marvel character? So, yes, I really, really like Thor because he's funny. But he I, is But funny. I like a lot of Marvel characters, so I'm always torn when people ask me that, but I, I like Thor's character quite a bit. Okay. Plus, he's Chris Hemsworth, so he's cute and Australian. You like to add on where they're from. Like with Chris Martin, you're like, oh, he's dreamy and British. Yeah, I mean, that helps. Chris Hemsworth, Those he's things funny help. and Australian. It adds to their Christmas. I'm waiting for you to be like, I'm waiting for you to be like, so-and-so is uh, is a really good guy and from North Carolina. <laughs> 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 All right, my number two was mentioned earlier, Chris Rock. Ta-da! Bet you haven't seen that one before. Knocked him dead in New York. Oh, that's your number two? That's yes, high up for you. I do love Chris Rock. He, if you ever just can watch his stand-up, Chris Rock, hilarious. Okay. I also, uh, my kids were of that age with Madagascar and everything, yeah. so I love those as well. Yeah. So, yes, I'm I'm a big fan of Chris Rock. Okay. Honorable mention, you mentioned before. Uh, give us your honorable mentions. I took, okay, this person was on my top five list, but you said we can't have friends. So this is one of my only sort of quote-unquote famous friends, Chris Kane. She was on my list, but I took her off. She might have counted, but I don't know. Yeah. I, I wanted a female Chris, so I threw her on there. And she's Australian. And she's Australian. <laughs> okay, who was on your honorable mention? Just I mentioned before. You also mentioned, right, Chris Tomlin was on yours? Or were yeah. you lying just to no, make no, our Chris Christian Tomlin audience was. feel good? No, no, no. I had already said that. So Chris Tomlin was also on mine. Uh, I had Chris Evans, who you had earlier. Yep. He was on mine. Maybe, maybe old school musician Chris Cross. Oh, Chris, wait, Chris Crossleg. I'll make you jump, jump. Wow. That's good. That's real good. Uh, Okay. So now we are at number one. What is who? Sorry, not yes. who, not what. Maybe I haven't heard you mention this person, so I wonder if we have the same we number one. We don't, because you've already said my number one. Oh, okay. uh, My number one is, I think you're number, four. I can't remember, four, maybe Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt. Dance off, bro. Me and you. What are you doing? I'm distracting you, you big turd blossom. He's just jolly and fun, and he is a Christian, and and he's he's American, (laughs) married to the Schwarzenegger gal. I just like him. I really like him. Schwarzenegger gal. Yep. Okay. Uh, Chris Pratt, to me, is the new Harrison Ford. 
Like, he can do anything. Like, he could be the new Indiana Jones. He could be the new Han Solo. He is, you know, that Jurassic Park, that Marvel, that he's got that Harrison Ford vibe to me. That is a large statement to make Yeah, I believe it. Chris Pratt. Okay. Or, yes, that's who you said, right? Chris Pratt? Yep. Chris Pratt is the new... Harrison Ford. Okay, we're gonna we're going to. Uh, okay, that's a big statement. Uh, you made a declaration earlier that made me change my number one oh. for my number two because I was going to joke with you and make my number one Chris Miss. <laughs> no, no good. Ah, nope, can't do it. Doesn't I like work. it. I like it, but no. Chris Miss. Nope. Okay, I like the Chris Dash Miss. All right. Uh, so I moved my number two up to number one. My number one favorite famous Chris is Chris Farley. My name is Matt Foley, and I am a motivational speaker. And I live in a van down by the river. Oh, Chris Farley. Yeah, so Chris Farley, tragically, yes, uh, passed away way back in the late 90s. Uh, But maybe I would count him and Will Ferrell as like, Probably, in my opinion, in, of watching Saturday Night Live, like the two funniest Saturday Night Live I think people. Will, Will Ferrell and Molly Shannon and Chris Farley, that sort of age of yes. SNL was pretty fantastic. So if you go with, you know, uh, you know, the man down by the river or lunch lady <laughs> yes. or any of those. The, the, the dancer. <laughs> Patrick Swayze is Chippendale stuff. <laughs> Uh, Chris Farley, I found him and continue to find him to be just hilarious. So that will be my number one, Chris. We'd love to know what you think. We'll put these up at social media. Our top five famous Chris's. Chris's. That was the most random one we've done yet, but a good time. Coming up next, want to talk about an interesting tweet that I saw the other day about what what do we measure as success in the church world? That's coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Uh, I want to read to you a tweet from someone who's been on the show before. The author, she is the author of The Liturgy of Politics. Uh, her name is Caitlin Shess. You said you know her a little bit. Yeah, we worked on some writing projects together for uh, Propel Women. Uh, so totally Ish. aside, are the, you're... you're uh, in the women author world, in the Christian women mm-hmm. author world, is do you guys all kind of know each other at least a little bit? I would is say it a small are, enough world? Yeah, there are various connecting points for sure. Several of us are in similar writers guild. You end up writing for the same place. Like Caitlin and I have not met, but Propel did a project on Unity where we all wrote something on Ephesians. She and I were some of the article writers okay. on that. So like your worlds do sort of cross and collide and. Uh, Sort of all loosely connected, like seven degrees of Kevin Bacon separation. Is the, is the see? I would think it's the is the center of the hub. There is the hub of the wheel of Jesus. That. Also, the, this is it actually six degrees of Beth Moore. <laughs> that may be that, that's interesting. That would be a very interesting theory. Like all roads lead to back to Beth Moore all, in this conversation. I would say they probably lead back to Beth Moore, or maybe like a Pentecostal leader like uh, Sarah Jakes Roberts. Like okay. somehow there, because there are different sort of worlds too. Okay. You know. All right. Well, anyway, Caitlin Chess, as I said, wrote a great book. We had her on the show to talk about this book months ago called The Liturgy of Politics. Uh, she wrote this just a couple days ago, and I, it just got my mind going like, OK, this is important. She said it is impossible to read the prophets and think that the measure of success for faithful ministry 
is numbers, influence, or human affirmation. Mm. They are such a challenge to the messages we don't even realize we've picked up from the world. So she's looking back, looking at scripture, looking at the prophets, and saying that basically you can't read them and go the way that we tend to measure success of churches, of ministries, of authorship, or whatever else it might be. Uh, are completely askew, are completely off. Mm. What do you think about what Caitlin had to say here? I, I feel like this is a hard message to hear because I do think somewhere, and I think I've even bought into it, Brian, like somewhere in the Christian world, we've equated anointing with like worldly success. Mm-hmm. Lots of followers, lots of book deals, lots of conference events. Like, And we've said that's the anointed person. Oh, God is showing them favor. Oh, they're, you know, and so I, I think I have had that twisted in my mind. Like, Lord, oh, obviously you're using that person at such a high scale. Therefore, you are, you've chosen them, you mm-hmm. know, and, and that, I don't know. That's a really hard thing to grapple with because obviously she's right. Like, you see the prophets, I think of Jeremiah. I mean, the dude was kidnapped. His life was That's threatened. Right. Like right. He was not like God had called him through doors. He was anointed for this message that he proclaimed to the Israelite people before they were uh, taken captive by Babylon. But that didn't mean like he got, you know, golden rings and book deals or whatever. Like he literally, his life was destroyed. Yes. And I think sometimes we just, we have to remember that sometimes when God opens doors for us, we're called to be pressed. We're not called to be like published, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but it, this is, this is a hard thing in my own soul to remember in American Christianity. It's hard because I long to have large numbers and influence in human affirmation, like all of those. Yes. But she is not wrong that these are the things that the prophets spoke against. So it's not even, are these just not the things they held mm. up? These are the things they spoke against. They and actually said, no, let's right. move forward to Jesus and the Pharisees. What are the things that Jesus spoke against? It was their desire for human affirmation or yeah, influence right. or, or a platform or whatever else it might be. So then what's the antidote? What's the answer? I remember a long time ago reading, not a long time ago, reading a book. I'm going to forget the author's name. It was called The Measure of Our Success for mm-hmm. Pastors. Mm-hmm. It was called like a plea for pastors. And... um it was really good. And I remember being really challenged and then having trouble implementing these things into my life yeah. because we are uh, we are so mm, like trained, I guess is the wrong word, but to use numbers and to use all of these things yep. as what we do. So what, Aubrey, what's the antidote? What, what should be the measure of our success? I guess I'll ask it that way. What should be the measure of our success? I appreciate that. Um, uh, one of Beth Moore's responses to Caitlin Shess's tweet, she says 100%. So she's agreeing with Caitlin. It is also utterly impossible to read the prophets and think God would not greatly chastise a people for relentless acts of injustice. And I, th- the way I guess that made me think about the answer to your question is somehow it has to be about worshiping God, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, it just feels like, we need to remember that God is God. We are not. Let's get on our knees and bow down and worship before him and um, somehow put this other stuff that like the trappings of the Christian faith, numbers, influence, human affirmation, 
the trappings. Of, I mean, that's kind of the trappings of humanity, right? Like somehow that has to be put in its proper perspective. I think even renounced in some cases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And let's just get back on our knees, worshiping God and choosing to serve him and him alone and not worry about this other stuff. So I think it takes a posture, a posture of repentance and a posture of like, Lord, you are what matters, not these other things. But it's hard. It's super hard. I wonder if there's also teaching to be done within our churches, because sometimes sometimes uh, it's personally driven as to why, you know, we as pastors, we look towards numbers or influence or whatever. Sometimes it's also congregationally driven. That's so true. Why is that church that's up the so road true. bigger than ours? Why yeah. is that church? Why is that? And you're like, oh, well, I guess that's what we're, they want me shooting for then. Mm-hmm. Like, let's go. Like, there has to be a way to to value the things that aren't even measurable, like the transformation and the godliness, holiness of our congregation, yeah, the yeah. long obedience in the same direction. But what becomes hard is you can't measure those things. I can measure uh, <laughs> right. people in the seats. I can measure budgets. I can measure all of that stuff. Uh, and But Caitlin is right here. Like, the things that the prophets spoke against are often the things in our Western evangelical churches that we value the most. That's so true. And and I think we have to wrestle with that. That book I mentioned before, The Measure of Our Success, was written by Sean Lovejoy. I've always loved his last a name. great last Lovejoy. name. Come not, on. Not only because Reverend Lovejoy was in The Simpsons, right? That's the name of the, of the Reverend in The Simpsons. I didn't watch The Simpsons, but I believe that. Simpsons have been on for like 30 years. Have you never watched The Simpsons at I all? I mean, sure. I've seen The Simpsons go by in life, but I have not. I didn't know there was a pastor named Lovejoy. So I love that even more. There you go. I so, love Joy that even more. Sean Lovejoy. It was a great book. But I think all of us, whether we are pastors, but or we're just people in churches, what makes a successful church? What causes you to look at your church or another church and go, they're, they're succeeding. Yeah. They're winning. Yeah. And uh, I think we have to ask those hard questions. What would the prophets have said? What would Jesus have said? And do those match up for us? Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about Mike Frost. He has a blog post that says this, that evangelism, the lost art of telling three stories, not one. We're going to talk about what those three stories are next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're talking about the lost art of evangelism. And we're joined by the Gospel Coalition's Sarah Zylstra to talk about justice and mercy at the southern border. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Friday afternoon. Hope you have some exciting weekend plans. I am Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm. Brian, what are you up to this weekend, this this, uh mid-July weekend. It is a mid-July. So a couple different things. Ironically, people are ready for me just to answer baseball. My son actually does have a baseball tournament, <laughs> but true. my wife has went to it. Hey. I'm home with the girls. Wow. Uh, so, but my daughter, my youngest daughter, Emily, has kind of gotten into softball now. And so, but to a much lesser degree, but now she has some softball games this week. So I'm going to be a softball dad softball this weekend. Dad. I love it. I'll also preach. And then on Sunday afternoon, our my younger two kids are going on a youth group trip up cool. to Wisconsin, out in the river and How camping fun. up at Expeditions Unlimited. So yeah, lots of cool stuff going on. How about you guys? I'm, I feel <laughs> I feel like Black Widow is going to be consumed. Oh, yes. We bought our tickets for Black Widow earlier in the week. We are all very excited, trying to avoid any conversation about Black Widow so that nothing is spoiled for us. But she that dies, will... you know. 
<laughs> That's what my youngest son keeps saying. She's dead. How is there a movie? That's a spoiler alert, by the way, for those of you who haven't watched all of the Marvel movies. But anyway, that's what we're doing when this did weekend. She she di- oh, I didn't know yeah, this. Yeah, you know. off the cliff. Yeah, yeah. Bah, yeah and the- she dies in Endgame. She sacrifices yes. herself like Jesus like in her Endgame. And, her and the, uh, the Hawkeye. Uh, Hawkeye are like both yes. wanting to sacrifice themselves. Yes. yes, I remember. Oh, it's such a beautiful moment. Well, let's have a little moment of silence for Black Widow. Was that a beautiful moment? Well, it was sad. All right. Well, we'll talk more about that next week after I, after we've watched that. I can give you my total take oh. on all things you know Black Widow. Answer. She's dead. <laughs> all, right. all right, Brian, let's get into this. You uh, are passionate about evangelism as a pastor. And Mike Frost said something really interesting about evangelism. Yeah, Michael Frost is, uh, he blogs at MikeFrost.net, and he is Australian, and he speaks at a lot of conferences, like, I tend to, I would always go to the Exponential Conference. And yeah, the he's church a church planner guy, yeah, missional he, church guy. But he really does challenge you, He cha- like, and that's what makes him so, he's a captivating speaker, mm-hmm. but one of the reasons that he's captivating is he will really kind of po- uh, poke at some things that we always assume. Yeah. And kind of just go, well, why do we assume that? What is? Let's rethink this. And a lot of times you're left listening or reading Michael Frost and you're left with two feelings. You're left feeling inspired, mm-hmm. but also um, challenged isn't a strong enough word. Almost guilty. Almost convicted. Yeah, convicted. Yeah. That's, our, that's yeah. our Christian word for guilt there. <laughs> uh, and so you're kind of left with those going, okay, yeah, I, I want to do. Yes, he's right. But what? And you kind of get left with that. And that's kind of the idea here behind his article here called Evangelism, the Lost Art of Telling Three Stories, Not One. Because he, he wants to call the question that a lot of times when we talk about evangelism, uh, we tell one story. Usually it's our story. Mm. Hey, let me tell you about what Jesus did in my life. Right, uh, you know, right. if you're not a Christian, Aubrey, let me tell you about, uh, you know, I met Jesus at a young age. Mm-hmm. I met Jesus when I was older mm-hmm. and I was at rock bottom. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you. And then the hope is that you will be inspired by my story to accept the claims of Jesus. Yeah. And, and that's part of it that Frost talks about. But Frost says that there's actually three stories that we tell uh, for effective evangelism. Okay, let's hear them. The three stories are one, the story of God. Hmm. So what is the story? What is... Uh, what is, he says, evangelism obviously, of course, involves talking about God, but not like a sales pitch, more like an epic story. It's the story of God. And you kind of lay out what is this good news that we're talking about? Two is what we talked about before your own story of a life with Jesus. Hey, before I came to Christ, this is where I was at. But then I, you know, I, I met Jesus. Here's what I mean by that the story of God. And now let me tell you about my life yeah. now. And, and those are usually the two that we get. But the third story is this, your non-Christian friend's story hmm. is like, hey, and here's where, here's how Jesus can change your life. Uh, it, he says it might sound presumptuous to suggest that our job is to tell people their story, but there is nothing so intimate, so loving as being able to put another person's story into words. Kind of like, wow. here's what's been going on in your life. Here's what I know about you. Here's mm. what you're passionate about. Here's your struggles. But let me tell you about Jesus. Mm. And he says that kind of if you had a Venn diagram where the three stories intersect, uh, their story, your story, and God's story, that's the sweet spot of evangelism. That's wow. what it means to evangelize. Uh, and that's not re- that that kind of reframes some things for me, especially the kind of talking about their story before they come to Christ. Like, here's 
where I see your, you know, kind of your need or, or your, not just your need, but here's where the story of Jesus would make such an impact in your life. Yeah, I think this is a good uh, this is a good image for all of us as Christians when we're talking with other people. I feel like a lot my my master's degree is in evangelism, and so one of the biggest things that we've learned, honestly, is just to listen with one ear towards the person and the other ear towards the Holy Spirit. So you're you're listening, you're asking questions, you're being curious, you're getting to know people. And the whole time you're saying, okay, Holy Spirit, if there's a, if there's something in here that you want to speak into this person's mm-hmm. life based on the story, would you reveal that to me? And so your you're dual listening is kind of a language that we yeah. talk about a yeah. lot in evangelism. And I feel like this is what he's saying. Like you just know someone well enough. You're listening with empathy. You're actively listening that you can say, wow, I see God at work in your life in this way. Or, wow, that's so interesting. That's how your story is connected to my story. And look at what God did. And it becomes sort of this natural outflow of this relationship rather than sort of an awkward, like, abrupt shift into suddenly you're evangelizing. No, it's just part of a natural flow of your conversation when you uh, take, yeah, take their story as seriously as you're taking your own testimony. That's right. He says, as we discern God's grace in their story, Through careful and respectful listening, there are several things to keep in mind. One, evangelism doesn't mean sharing everything all at once. That's so good. In fact, if you are true to God's story, you can't do it all at Mm. once. Two, you don't have to do it the same way every time. In fact, if you are true to their story, you can't do it the same way every time. That's good. Three, you don't have to have all the answers. In fact, if you are true to your story, you know you really don't have all the answers. <laughs> wow. And he quotes later Tim Keller when Keller wrote, everybody has got a story. If you're able to inhabit that so well that they feel that you know their story better than they do and then show in a compelling way how that story is only going to find resolution in Jesus, then they are going to find a compelling case for Jesus. And I love how, or for Christianity, he ends by saying, evangelism is simple. It just involves learning three really complicated, beautiful, perplexing stories really well, and then figuring (laughs) out how to tell them with gentleness, grace, and kindness. I've talked about this on the show many times. I grew up with a very sales pitchy, yeah, um, idea of evangelism and it made me never want to talk about jesus to my friends and never really uh want to share i i love this approach though of hey listen to other people's stories kind of understand it know it tell Mm -hmm. them your story Mm -hmm. but also help them understand god's story and how that affects my story and your story i think framing it around story is really helpful yeah one of the Best examples I've heard of this, and this is obviously can't work for everyone. This is one example is we do sometimes think we have to share the gospel in one specific way. But Mm -hmm. there are moments like, for instance, you're talking with someone who you you know and you love and you spent time with. And they're telling you about their their wounded relationship with their dad or their mom. And that becomes a point where you can step in and talk about any wounds you may have with your parents. And then that's an obvious place for the metaphor of God being our perfect parent, the Lord being a good, good father, as we talked about in our top five Chris's. Um, We can... So anyway, all that to say, I think be mindful of the different metaphors for the gospel, different Mm -hmm. metaphors of God's love when you're listening to someone's story so that you can find the one that speaks into their deepest need. Because the beautiful thing about the gospel, so multifaceted, the gospel meets everyone right where they are. That's right. And the the answer becomes, do the work of an evangelist. (laughs) Go tell your story, (laughs) learn other people's stories, uh, and ultimately proclaim this good news of the gospel.
Yeah, such a good word, Brian. Well, stick around. Next up, we're joined by Gospel Coalition editor, writer, Sarah Zylstra. She's a friend of the show. We're going to be talking with her about justice and mercy at the southern border. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. And we're thrilled to be joined again uh, by a good friend of the show, Sarah Zylstra. Sarah is a senior writer and faith and work editor for the Gospel Coalition, also the co-author of a book called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. Sarah, how are you doing today? Oh, Brian, thanks so much much for having me on again. I'm doing great. It's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, for people who haven't heard you before, why don't you just introduce yourself so they can get to know you a little bit better? Sure. My name, as you said, is Sarah Zylstra. I grew up in the cornfields of Iowa and moved to Chicago with my husband so we could go to graduate school after we went to college. Um, And so after that, we graduated and stuck around. There's a lot of economic opportunity in Chicago. So here we are. Um, we live in the south suburbs in a suburb called Homewood, kind of close to Indiana. Um, and we go to church at Orland Park Christian Reformed Church in Orland Park. Um, yeah, it's it's good. We love the city. We love it. Awesome. Um, Sarah, thanks so much for being here again. We love having you. You wrote an article recently for the Gospel Coalition called Justice and Mercy at the Southern Border. And rather than me just reading your article to you, why don't you tell us a little bit about what is going on? <laughs> yep. So this is um, so immigration is such a tricky topic. There's really no good way. It's such a tangled up complicated thing. And there's so many unintended consequences of every decision you try and make in it. Um, it, it just almost feels impossible for Christians to approach it with correct the correct amounts of, of you know, you want to have justice, you want to have secure borders, you want to show mercy to people who um, are made in the image of God and need help. So it just yeah. feels like a thing you can't ever get your arms around and you don't really know what, what stand to take on. And um, it's it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we I w- I'm so excited. I found a guy whose name is Rondell Trevino. His biological father was an immigrant, mm-hmm. but he grew up. Um, he's Hispanic. He grew up in the United States. American mom um, didn't even speak Spanish. Very American, but um, not interested in immigration until he met a girl from El Salvador when he was doing a discipleship training in Memphis. She was there on a on a scholarship and he fell in love with her and they got married and then had to work their way through the immigration process. And it actually was a pretty smooth process for them. But it takes a long time. It took 18 months, which when you are a freshly married couple is a really long time to be away from your spouse. And um, as his wife says, like their relationship still bears scars Mm. being apart for that long. Like you can't communicate, you know, lovingly, you're not with each other. It's hard. Um, And if you think about families separated by that, that's a pretty traumatic thing for families to endure. So anyway, he got interested in immigration at that point and started thinking about, he reads a lot of Tim Keller. He's super thoughtful, has been to seminary and is trying to come at this from a gospel center point of view. Like how do we um, secure our borders, catch human traffickers, um, stop any sex trafficking, um, put people through a proper channel. And yet also like show like, you know, a lot of these people as they're coming to the border, just living in what they call colonias, which are almost like villages along the border, both sides of the border. Um, and it's hard. They, they're living in RVs. Maybe they're living in a tent. They have a dirt floor. They're, um, they, it, these are difficult situations. They don't have 
um, hardly anything. And so he got interested in that. He moved to Austin, Texas to take a job in a church last year during the pandemic and wanted to do something physical. And so partnered with a water company and brings, he brings water to them. So this is, they don't have running water. Um, and, and it's hot and they're poor. And of course, as you know, water is a huge need. Um, not only that, a biblical command to, to give water. Yeah. Right. It's literally right out of the Bible. And so he started partnering. So he's got um, people who sponsor him and, and give him money, some as, as little as $4 a month. And he um, buys water at a discount from a company and then brings it to these colonias, partners with churches there um, who are doing ministry among the people. And it basically functions as a support system for them. Oh, it's unbelievable. Sarah, how, like you said, the immigration, the border, it's such a hot button political issue, right? Like this is maybe the top hot button political issue. But what do you see or what do you hear people that you're interviewing say is the church's responsibility, the church's call more under the teachings of Jesus versus under the teachings of a specific political party? Yeah. You know, that's it's a tricky one. And I'm finding people working in the immigration field who who feel differently about, you know, how many people should be let in or what do we do with the children? You know, you say something that's supposed to be merciful, like we'll take your, your children and then everybody just sends the kids. And so the unintended consequences of that are, Mm. are horrific. And you know, everything you try and decide to do seems like it backfires. So I think the main thing we're hearing is there needs to be some justice that's clear all throughout the Bible of like, we need to have these people on a proper path. It's very difficult for them to get on a proper path right now, um, especially if they come across undocumented. Many are coming because um, America looks like a land of opportunity, but really you don't leave your home unless something terrible is happening at your home. Yeah, In these countries, their government is very corrupt. Um, they, they have no economic opportunity. There's a lot of gangs, a lot of street gangs, a lot of times targeting children. So if you're a family that lives in El Salvador and gangs are targeting your children um, to take them away from you to do whatever kind of trafficking they're going to do, you want to get out of there for sure and would do almost anything to do that. So the it's the desperation that's driving them that Rondell and his friends are trying to address in terms of like, these are human beings. Um, can we provide for them some basic needs? Can we give them some water? That's and then it would be really great if we could provide, you know, some sort of help for their countries. Also difficult because you got all kinds of corrupt governments. Um, so lots of strings attached to any aid that you that you pass out down there. But how could we make it? Could we make it so that they don't want need to leave their countries in the first place? Yeah. Um, Sarah, for any of our listeners who maybe are feeling really passionate about what you're talking about and specifically about what Ron Dell is doing, is there a way that they can support his work at the border? Absolutely. Um, I would tell them if what he works with, he calls it the Immigration Coalition. So if you Google that or follow him on social media, you will become even more passionate because he posts pictures um, of where where he's delivering this water and the people who are lining up for the food and the people who need the clothes. And there's, you know, I've got pictures. I talked to one lady who works directly with him and she's like, in the in the cold snap, I don't know if you remember in Texas mm-hmm. when all the electricity went out. Yes, like these people, they had nothing, and so what they did is they take an aluminum tub inside their home, which would be a very small home or maybe an RV, and and light a fire in it. So there's like open flames in their house because they had no other way to keep warm. 
So just the, um, so she was bringing everybody like electric heaters and blankets and trying to keep kids warm that way. She's like, I couldn't even sleep. I was just thinking about these little kids shivering, um, in a, in a house with no heat somewhere. So, mm. um, if you want help head over to the immigration coalition. You can find them on social media. You can find them on Facebook. You can find that, find their website and, and get plugged in that way. Again, Sarah Zylstra is senior writer and faith and work editor for the Gospel Coalition. Uh, go check out the article we've been discussing, Justice and Mercy at the Southern Border. You can do that at thegospelcoalition.org. Uh, you had the opportunity to interview J.D. Greer. And, and for background, uh, J.D. Greer uh, was the outgoing president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's been the president for the last three years. And Aubrey and I talked a lot, as you can imagine, about all that happened with the Southern Baptist Convention over the last month. But as you talked to J.D. Greer specifically about his hopes, I guess I would wonder, did you find him to be hopeful for the Southern Baptist Convention as he was kind of going out of office? And if so, what was he hopeful about? Yes, I did find him to be hopeful, more actually hopeful than I anticipated that he would be. Mm. Um, he has been the president for three years. Usually the SBC president only sticks, is on, they're limited to two. Um, and yet he went three because of COVID last year, canceled their, their meeting where they would normally elect a new one. So he's been around through quite a lot. He's been around through um, the sex abuse scandals that are, have hit the mainstream media about SBC churches and how a lot of the leadership um, unfortunately covered up or protected the abusers and, and the reputations of yeah. churches. Um, he's been around through COVID. He's been around through, um, gosh, all of last year, the race um, tensions in the church. So he's seen a lot. Um, and he talks about, it was really interesting. He talks about two things. One, he called the leaven of the liberals, which is something that SBC has fought in the past. I don't know if you Oh, if your listeners would recall back in the 80s and 90s when all the mainstream denominations were moving toward liberalism, and so was the SBC, hmm. until they sort of had a groundswell movement, fired almost everyone out of their seminaries, hired conservative, you know, people who believed in the inerrancy of the Bible, and kind of turned that whole ship around. So that's what he calls the, the leaven of the liberals move, working its way through. And now what he sees is what he calls the leaven of the Pharisees, mm. where, um, you know, almost a, a legalism of like, this is, these are the beliefs you have to have. He saw this emerging, especially during COVID when people would get nervous, they weren't around each other as much to sort of soften each other and see like, okay, that person can vote differently than me, but I see the love of Jesus in him and how yeah. he served with me. You didn't see that because you were alone in your house and consuming probably quite a bit of media and online mm news, which is, uh, you know, not, not the best for us. Um, and so he's seeing what, what he's sort of seeing working through is like, he just said, I see a lot of, um, where people turn to when they're scared uh, for a lot of them was their political beliefs. And that Mm -hmm. became really strong and that became an extra, right? Like a gospel and vote this way, a gospel Mm -hmm. and feel this way about Trump, a gospel and feel this way about wearing masks, a gospel yeah. and such and such. And so he's like, it's, the trouble, of course, is that the, the leaven of the Pharisees as it works its way through is actually harder to combat because you could have right beliefs and yet your heart can be in the wrong place, right? If you're, if you're hard-hearted and you must follow all these laws, um, you know, in order to be what I would consider a true Christian or whatnot. And so that's sort of the challenge that the Southern Baptists have been facing. What's interesting is that what they face is what we're all facing, right? They're a little bit of a bellwether for American evangelicalism. 
though, as you, as you can see that in them, I'm sure your listeners and we can see this in our own churches as well. But he said, even though he sees that he has great hopes because we have the gospel and the gospel mm-hmm. corrects. So like at no matter what blind spot we're facing or realizing all of a sudden that we're in, the gospel always corrects. Wow. And so you can keep that there. Um, you know, and he's like, man, when my grandkids, my grandkids are looking back at me, they'll see stuff I did wrong and they'll use the gospel to correct what I'm doing wrong now, just like I'm using the gospel to look back on people in our past and, and correct what they, you know, the gospel always brings you back. Mm. Yeah. Amen for that. Right. <laughs> this is part of why we need the gospel. <laughs> Good. Right. Right. Um, Sarah, one of the things that you say in the article, or I guess it's the conversation with J.D. Mm-hmm. Greer is um, talking a little bit about what you touched on before some of the sexual abuse cover up. Um, you talk about or yeah, how Greer heard from the Houston Chronicle that 380 SBC church leaders were probably guilty of sexual abuse for over a period of 20 years. He heard some other things as well, but essentially his wife saw that as confirmation that Greer was in the right spot. Can you expound Mm. on that a little bit? I can a little bit and I wish I could more, but I don't know all the details. Um, so he said when he first came to the presidency, his wife was, has always been sort of a warning sound to him, right? Like, um, hey, fame is not what you think it's going to be. The mm. farther you move into this landscape, the more time you're giving to other people, the less time you're giving to the people who love you as anyone who's like working their way up through a right. career having to make those decisions about like, who gets my time here? Yeah. Um, and so just warning him like, hey, you can take this job, but heads up, you are making trade-offs. Um, but when all this came out, she said to him, I feel like this is a confirmation that you're in the right spot at the right time. He had dealt with issues like this previously. God had been working on their hearts in terms of like, how does how do we address this? Um, and he had come to a pretty strong feeling like, you know what we have to do is um, we're leaning too heavily on the side of defending the offender and too lightly on the side of believing and pursuing justice for those who are victims. Hmm. So his approach has been very heavily like we're going to believe people, we're going to investigate, we're going to you know take this seriously and follow these steps. So that's wow. what. Yeah, got it. For such a time as this. Okay. There you go. There you go. Sarah, before we let you go, uh, we've talked to you about your book before, uh, mm-hmm. but I would love for you, well, you know, let's sell some books. Let's let some people <laughs> know about your books. Tell us about again about Gospel Bound uh, and what the book is about, and uh, we'll encourage people to go pick it up. Yeah. Um, so Gospel Bound, it's kind of a funny name, but what we meant by that is as, as Colin, my co-editor and I were kind of looking at the landscape of Christianity and how evangelical um sort of has become um, means like white people who vote Republican, um, <laughs> how the mainstream media uses it. And that's sort of how it's become defined. And we're looking for a word that would mean like someone who's tied to Jesus. So gospel bound to us means like a, a Christian who who is tied to the gospel, right? Like we're wanting to live that out and also bound toward heaven. And so less just puts all things in perspective. When you think about, I have eternity with Jesus. It changes how you make your decisions here. Um, when you're not worried about like, Oh no, I have to make this life my best life ever. Or, you know, like that's not your best life. Please. I hope this isn't your best life ever. Um, (laughs) best life coming yet. So you can make different decisions with your time here. And so Mm -hmm. what we did was we took a bunch of directives out of Romans to the church in the margins, which is what our American church is rapidly becoming as well. Mm. 
um, you know, care for those who are suffering, care for the weak, love your enemies, suffer with joy. And we, we gave each of those a chapter. And then we filled them up with stories of people who are living like that right now. And like examples of this, these are, this is real. This is how it could, this is how this plays out. This is how you could do it too. Um, Sarah, for our listeners who are interested in finding out more about you and your writing, and I, you know, we know there might be an upcoming podcast in the future. Where can they find all things Sarah Zylstra? They can go to the gospelcoalition.org or tgc.org. It'll take you to the same place. All my stuff is on there. For the past four and a half years, I've been writing stories like Rondell's of Um, My job has been to find places where God is at work in the world through his people and write those down. And it is tremendous what God has been doing. He did not stop um, with the early church. God is, his spirit is active everywhere. And if you just have the eyes to look around and see it. So I find and tell those stories. If you want to be encouraged, you can find them there. That's where the podcast will come out uh, around the week of September 11. Um, You can see it there and um, everything else good that comes out of the Gospel Coalition. Great. Well, Sarah, we always uh, love having you on. We appreciate your generosity of time. Again, Sarah Zalstra is a senior writer and faith and work editor for the Gospel Coalition. Go check her out at thegospelcoalition.org. Also the co-author of Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. Sarah, it's always fun. Thanks for taking the time today. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. back to the common good on Friday afternoon. Hope you're headed home to some Friday evening. evening now yes. it is like nighttime. Hope you're headed home to something really, really exciting. My family is about to head out and go see Black Widow. Brian's got some softball this weekend. Right. So hopefully you've got some exciting weekend plans as well. I'm Aubrey Sampson here with my co-host Brian Fromm and we wanted to wrap up today. We like to do this at the end of every show with something inspiring, some good news, something to give you courage as you go throughout your weekend. And um, Michael W. Smith, the Christian artist, probably most popular uh, song is Friends Are Friends I, Forever. That's that's certainly the Lord, one of the them. Lord of them. Go West, young man. Go West, young man. I mean... He's the Christian artist of our day. Yeah, I mean, he, that is. he really is. He, I think his album was one of my first like Christian albums. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And yes. I'm oh. not sure all the early songs translate, but they don't need to. They, they, they were good in their to. time. Yeah, they're good in their time. That's a good yes. way to think about it. And my- what's really admirable, I think you might be getting into this a little bit, is you can, we don't know him, but we at least publicly have never seen any... No scandals, no controversy. That's right. That's right. And I think that's to be admired. That's actually what I wanted to bring to your attention. So he was actually recently interviewed for Religion News Service by Mena Moira, reflecting on his own experience of faith and fatherhood and some of the things that kept him grounded. Let's go ahead and take a listen to part of that conversation. I put family first. Yeah. And we knew... um, Deb and I talked about this extensively in the early days, especially when, you know, when things really began to, to take off, mm. you know, when I was opening up for Amy and uh, the Friends Tour in the big picture and, you know, and all of a sudden you're... Life turned quickly. Boy, and all of a sudden yeah. you, get, you got 18,000 people showing up and uh, and we thought there's a, there's a better chance of us being a casualty than not. So we have to make sure that doesn't happen. Wow. So, because you look at it, you look at what yeah. happened, people, and people, actors and musicians, all that. It, it's pretty Celebrity, insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. there. And so it can suck you into this whole hmm. thing of entitlement and 
you're a rock star, all that kind of stuff, the temptations. Yep. We can take you for a ride. And so Deb and I just we made some rules. And said, I'd never be away from my family more than two weeks. That's just the rule. Even if I have to go to Europe, come back. We're coming back. Going back to Europe. Go to, yeah. <laughs> but I could be gone more than two weeks, and I never was gone more than two weeks. All right, so that's Michael W. Smith. You just get a sense of his daddy's heart and his yes. grandfather's yes. heart right there, which I think is so precious. One of the things that he says in this interview is that he always put family first, that he and his wife, especially when he was starting to get really popular and kind of his music was taking off, he said, basically, we have to make sure that our family is not a casualty mm-hmm. in fame and we can't get entitled. We can't become like, quote unquote, rock stars. And so he made some family rules. He was never gone for from his family more than two weeks. He regularly drove his kids carpool like he just stayed very grounded. And because of that, I think that goes back to what you're saying, Brian. We don't hear scandals around mm-hmm. him. We mm-hmm. see a guy who's been faithful to his family and kept his fame in its proper Place. What do you think about that? I just love that somebody like him, I mean, you, you might read this and make, oh, great, you made a rule that you'll never be gone more than two weeks in Europe, like whatever. But in reality, if he stayed for, he's saying like, even if he was on tour in Europe, he would never be gone more than two weeks. Yeah. Right? And the reality is if he had stayed four weeks, he would have made double the money. Like you can mm-hmm. always justify these things. I could always, in his world, he could always do another concert. He could always do another this or that. Uh, But he said, you know what? I'm going to put my family first, my wife first, my kids first. I'm going to be a dad, right? And one of the ways we describe being a dad is like he drove carpool, right? right? Like we've all done that when our kids were little. And, um, you know, it must have been a weird time because he was certainly he he talks in this article about how he used to open for Amy Grant. And then all of a sudden you've got, you know, you're you're just this big deal. Yeah. As an aside, I remember being young in the church world thinking Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant were married to one another. Uh, (laughs) They would have made a cute couple. But then, you know, you can read. He made definite choices along the way to stay grounded. And again, we don't know anybody's skeletons in their closet, but he certainly from the outside appears to have lived a life of integrity, of character, has loved his family well, seems to have a strong family and a great ministry where all these people know him and he's singing. And like he didn't have to give up one for the other. And I think often we think we have to give up one for the other. I'm going to be this driven. I'm going to go blah, blah, blah. And then but my family's going to be a casualty or I'm just going to be family man. But I got to kind of give up ambition. I can't be that. And I think that there are people like Michael W. Smith here, but obviously a lot of people who try to walk that edge that says, no, I want to make the most of my career while being a present and good dad, while being a present and good husband and, and whatever else it might be. Uh, interesting. I, I've It's good. I don't, you know, you, you kind of. Again, Michael W. Smith songs are kind of in the soundtrack of our childhood, <laughs> right? So and our growing up years. But but you don't really know of him. I know when we were at Wheaton, I think his wife was a Wheaton grad. So every now and then you'd hear like, oh, Michael W. Smith is in the studio. I feel like um, I remember him coming to Wheaton and doing right. a chapel at one point right, or something right. like that. He had he a movie tend- he was promoting. That's probably true. Yeah. And so he would come through sometimes because yeah. his wife was a Wheaton grad. But anyway, it's cool to see into their life. Mm-hmm. Also, how old do you feel that Michael W. Smith has 16 grandchildren? I mean, I, in my mind, he's not that much older than us, but he definitely is. He has 16 grandkids. Here's what I love about this. He also says that he has always prayed three things. Okay. 
He says that he prays, Lord, how do I abide in you? That's his number one prayer. Mm-hmm. Then number two, his prayer is, I will never, ever, ever be offended by anyone ever again. Can you mm. imagine that praying not to be offended by people? Especially in the public people? eye. Right. I think that is so powerful. And then the third one is he prays for a long life because he wants to keep enjoying his kids, his grandkids. And he says, maybe great grandkids one day. And, you know, earlier in the week, we talked about some of the the harrowing conservatorship around Britney Spears Mm -hmm. and some of the hard realities of her fame. I think this is almost that, that contrary story of here's a guy who has loved Jesus, who has maybe almost purposefully stayed out of the public eye and has seen a a beautiful legacy form around him. Yeah. And so it's to be admired, right? Again, you don't want to put people on pedestals too much. You don't want to make it about the person. Yep. But you do want to look for examples that mm. tell you, yeah, okay, it's possible to live, uh, to have success in your career and be driven and be faithful to your family and be a family man or woman and be, you know, you can yeah. have these things. Yeah. It takes some intentionality, all right? I'm not going to be gone for more than two weeks at right. a time. It takes some intentionality, some sacrifice. I'm sure there's things he turned down. I remember a very famous Christian pastor and speaker hearing him at a conference one time and he said, uh, I'm ne- I basically take, and he was to the point where he could choose his speaking gigs. Yeah. If I remember right, he said, I'm gone, uh, I'm gone at maximum three nights a month. Wow. And that's what him and his wife said. Wow. Think about the number of things you turn down there. So I think part of this is what are your priorities? Yep. Uh, lay them out. Be, be intentional about them and run after them. I think, you know, not a lot of us are going to be Michael W. Smith sure, for this. Sure. But we all have these tensions in our life and we can uh, we can make sure that we do them well. Yeah. Say no to overworking. Spend intentional time with your family. Be the dad. Be the mom who does the carpool. Serve your family. Serve your community. And I think the other thing is I'm hearing Michael W. Smith didn't like buy his own buzz. You yes. know what I mean? Like he was just like, no, I'm not going to be this entitled celebrity. And like you said. We don't know the ins and outs. We don't know all of that. But <laughs> we're, we're a little cynical by the time yeah, yeah, we've, we've gotten these wrong. That's true. We've gotten these stories wrong before. But what we see, I think, is an example of longevity and faithfulness in the public eye. And at the end of the day, it's a question we need to ask ourselves. Who, you know, who cares about Michael W. Smith? The question for us is, are we people of faithfulness? Are we people that are in it for the long haul? Are we people that are humble more than we are prideful? And are we people who are serving our families at the end of the day? Well, how did we forget his song Place in This World? That's got to <gasps> be his song. Place in This World! And his top song from 1986, Lamu. I don't know if I know Lamu. You do. Go look it up later. Could you and sing me a little it. bit? I could, but I am not going Brian. to send us into the weekend that way. I'm so I go with Place in This World, Friends are Friends place Forever. Where are we world. not doing a top five Michael W. Smith write song? Write it down. Just, write it down, somebody. There we top go. five Michael W. Smith. Well, all right. We hope that encourages you as you head out on your Friday evening. We hope you have a fabulous weekend. We're so thankful that you've been with us today. And we will be back on Monday from 4 to 6 p.m. right here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.